As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. The most frequently used words in the title of our Naked Reflections so far? Probably conflict. We get some earnest statistician, no names, no pack drill, to crunch the numbers later. But in the recent show, Resolving Conflict, Gershon Baskin, who's been trying to knock heads together in the Middle East for decades, talked about the time when his own family were caught up in the conflict he was trying to resolve, and his wife's cousin was killed by Hamas. When a year later, um, an Israeli soldier was kidnapped and taken off to Gaza, I was approached by someone in Gaza who was living through Israeli bombings, and incursions in the immediate aftermath of the attack on the Israeli military base. From that time, that was July 1st to 2006, until five years and four months later, I was making continual efforts to mediate between the government of Israel and Hamas on a prisoner exchange that would bring the Israeli soldier home. Eventually that happened, and and I was able to bring about a breakthrough that eventually led to the release of the soldier and 1,027 Palestinian prisoners were released in the deal. And it was very complex and very difficult. By the way, four people who were responsible for killing my wife's first cousin were released in the prisoner's deal. And his wife, his widow, was one of the people who appealed to the high court in Israel against the deal and, and doesn't speak to me until this day for my involvement in releasing the people who killed her husband. That's an example of conflict resolution at the sharp end, to put it mildly. And we have on our panel this week another peacemaker, Dr. Gwen Bernier of Merton College, Oxford, a political anthropologist whose research focuses on peace and conflict in Colombia and who worked closely with the Colombian government to bring about the historic peace deal with that country's FARC guerrillas in 2016. 
But there's a more formal and legal approach to conflict resolution. The investigation and persecution of international crimes and atrocities by establishing an international rule of law. Central to this project is the evolving work of the International Criminal Court based in The Hague. Step forward Mark Kirsten of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, whose authoritative blog is called Justice in Conflict. Well, welcome to you both. Mark, when did politicians first start thinking about an international system to deliver justice? And let's ask the question, what even counts as justice? The system of international justice that we have today really started at Nuremberg, but political actors more broadly really started thinking about how to prosecute adversaries for what we now consider war crimes much earlier. So just to name one example, the British did consider prosecuting Napoleon for, again, what we would consider war crimes today. You also have the example of after World War One, the desired prosecution of the German Kaiser that didn't end up happening because he received exile in the Netherlands. But there were efforts long before Nuremberg to set up some kind of system of international justice. But the person who really thought, first of all, of a kind of permanent international criminal court was the founder of the Red Cross, Gustave Moignet, who contemplated this idea of a permanent institution to prosecute war crimes, crimes against humanity, these types of atrocities because of what he witnessed in Soferino and elsewhere, this very brutal cost of warfare, especially with technological advancements. And eventually, I think this cost of violent political conflict and warfare led to a recognition by states that this piecemeal effort of sometimes prosecuting people or sometimes seeking revenge against some people without recourse to international law or to any law, for that matter, was unsustainable. And so you do have this Nuremberg moment following World War II, of course, with the prosecution of the of the Nazis, this attempt to make Nuremberg a more permanent feature, or the Nuremberg principles a more permanent feature of international affairs and international relations, really got stuck during the Cold War and then re- is revived in a significant way after the end of the Cold War and what many people see as this kind of liberal cosmopolitan moment of the 1990s. And, and eventually we see the establishment of a permanent international criminal court in 1998 with the Rome Statute. So how does this play out in Colombia, Gwen? Thank you very much for having me and fascinating to hear Mark talk. In the context of the 2016 peace agreement with the FARC guerrilla, the ICC had a particular role to play as a source of influence, I think, because Colombia was the first country to sign a peace agreement, a negotiated peace agreement, since the creation of the ICC as a signatory to the Rome Statute, which means that the state had an obligation to investigate, sentence and sanction those most responsible for grave international war crimes. So there would be no blanket amnesties possible, as had been the case in other negotiated peace accords, for example, in Central America. And it was clear that the ICC was watching. There were lots of meetings with the um, general prosecutor's office and the government negotiating teams to establish what the limits were. And there was a kind of latent threat that the ICC would be interested in stepping in if the resulting peace accord did not meet those international standards. And so they created this very innovative formula called the Special Jurisdiction for Peace, which is point five of the 2016 peace agreement. It's a transitional justice mechanism, which has, as you mentioned, Mark, not a focus on punitive justice, but a focus of restorative justice. And so the whole system seeks to 
encourage truth-telling by perpetrators on all sides, not just the FARC guerrilla, but also by the state and by paramilitary forces that collaborated with the state. And when it was signed, the International Criminal Court did praise the agreement for not creating impunity for international crimes. So the objective of the Special Jurisdiction for Peace is truth, justice, reparation to victims and non-repetition, the four pillars considered the mainstream of transitional justice. But of course, also reconciliation is the kind of larger, more political goal. You know, it's a mechanism that seeks to tell the truth and create some forms of symbolic justice, enough justice (laughs) to guarantee the non-repetition and allows Colombian society to turn the page on its violent 50 years of, of conflict. And we are waiting this year, it's a very important year, because the first sentences will be produced this year. And the sentences have been at the heart of the controversy of the Colombian peace process, because in the framework of this truth-telling mechanism, although it is a court, so it is a process of investigation, sentences and sanctions, perpetrators have the opportunity to get non-jail-based sanctions if they comply fully with truth-telling. This is the incentive by which the court is designed to try to balance these competing demands for truth, justice and peace. And so perpetrators have three options. If they fully tell all of the truth from the start, they will be given an alternative sentence, which means some form of symbolic community work. So a period of five to eight years, which is the sentence time established in the peace accord, doing some kind of community work, maybe rebuilding a road or building hospitals in the area that they caused harm to. If they don't comply with the truth-telling part straight away, but throughout the course of the investigation they do contribute, they will get a reduced sentence of five to eight years jail time. And if they refuse to you know, recognize their responsibilities and tell the truth about what happened, they will be given a maximum of 20 years jail time. And so this was the kind of controversial formula, controversial for some sectors of Colombian society. However, it was an innovative formula which permitted the balance of the different principles and was celebrated by the prosecutor's office of the ICC as a formula that would seek to prevent impunity and provide some measure of justice, but also allow society to turn the page. I think the terms that we're using are important, but also quite abstract and significant, right? justice, peace, conflict, truth, are probably the most historically contested terms in human history, right? I mean, we're basically talking about the building blocks of philosophy and not just law and accountability efforts or peace processes. And so, yeah, I think there is something central to any justice effort that relates to truth. The question really is what truths are possible within different types of approaches to justice and accountability. If we're focusing on criminal justice or international criminal justice, because I think, you know, they're obviously similar in the types of truths that they'll produce, the primary truth that is produced as a result was probably something that we would call a forensic truth, right? That certain crimes transpired as a result of certain perpetrators on certain days using certain motivations with certain consequences. And so we have a forensic kind of truth that's established. That's a really important type of truth. And it's related, but doesn't necessarily produce other types of truths, right? Historical truths. What are the historical processes that result in certain crimes being perpetrated? 
They're not necessarily social truths, right? Crimes are embedded in their social context, and those truths matter too. They may not get you convicted, but they may explain why you perpetrated the crimes that you did. And of course, moral truths, right? Was this bad, and why was this bad? It can't just be, I don't think, often at least, that a crime is bad because it's a crime. A crime is immoral because it's a crime. That's a little bit, you know, of a, it's a tautological claim. We've decided some things are immoral and should therefore be criminalized. And there's a moral truth to that that is sometimes touched upon in criminal prosecutions, but not necessarily always. And it's important, to, I think, to pay attention to the types of words that we use. And just to, you know, to agree with Gwen, you know, when we talk about sentencing, one of the really interesting things I think about Colombia with respect to sentencing is the types of truths that can come out and that it's tied to acknowledgement which is a really important type of truth, and also to kind of democratize the place of victims in establishing the truth. Oftentimes, victims are kind of used in in an extremely abstract manner when it comes to criminal prosecutions, right? Like, they're there, but, you know, we don't necessarily know that much about them. We say that criminal justice and international criminal law is for victims, but they don't really participate that much, right? in the actual processes. So Gwen, how does post-truth politics, which I think is something that that Mark is addressing, and the crisis of liberalism affect international justice and reconciliation? I think it's really important what Mark is saying, that this is all happening in social contexts, because there's really a very important relationship in transitional justice processes between top-down and bottom-up. In the Colombian case, the sentences, as I mentioned before, of the special jurisdiction for peace will be very important, but they will be completely useless if they're not embraced by Colombian society. And I think this is a topic that has been increasingly studied in transitional justice processes because the role of outreach, of communicating about court sentences and the purpose of these international courts to society is seen as increasingly crucial for these courts to have their final objective, which is, of course, an end to the violence and some degree of peace, justice and reconciliation. So I think Sierra Leone was the first transitional justice court to have outreach included in their mandate, um, and it was recognised as very important to improve legitimacy. And I think the ICC also does now have an outreach team. And there are many, many lessons that can be learned here. But in Colombia, the Colombian case has been really crucial because of a huge resistance to transitional justice by large sectors of society. And this is partly because there was a referendum in 2016 on the final peace agreement, which was rejected by Colombian society by just 50,000 votes, by 50.2%. And a large degree of the people who voted no were rejecting, in particular, the alternative sentences and what they felt was too many concessions being given to the FARC. But actually, what happened in that referendum was a crisis of truth. (laughs) Many people will recall 2016 was the year in which post-truth was celebrated rather unceremoniously as word of the year by Oxford Dictionaries. And we also had our own post-truth moment here in the UK with the Brexit referendum. Something very similar happened in Colombia because many people who voted in the referendum did so on the basis of narratives that had been spread by opposition leaders saying that if they voted yes, Colombia would become communist, the FARC would become the government, and gender ideology would be imposed, children would be turned gay by going to school, and it would destroy the traditional Colombian family. I mean, completely horrendous lies. The importance of social uptake of 
sentences and the work of transitional justice courts is absolutely crucial because otherwise you can have the most sophisticated justice mechanism and the most fair and the most philosophically, morally correct and philosophically sophisticated sentences that try to deal with these horrific crimes. But if society doesn't understand them in the way that they're intended, then they can not only not have the intended effect, but they can even backfire and create more polarisation and more violence. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Mark Kirsten and Gwen Bernier, author of the wonderfully titled book, Chocolate, Politics and Peacebuilding. We're discussing justice in conflict. I'd like to go upstream, as it were, and look at the concept of justice in a more general way. Here's an article from the Horizon magazine that features on the Naked Scientist website, Reinhold Mangundu of Stellenbosch University in South Africa writes about food poverty, starvation, and what he calls food justice. People need to have sovereignty over the type of food they produce. Food justice fights for the decentralization of food production. For us to achieve food justice, we need more localized, sustainable food systems, more food production through agroecological practices, such as permaculture, where people can grow food in sustainable ways, imitating nature's ecological processes. Food activists from all over the world are pushing to localize food systems through a spectrum of initiatives. Food sovereignty movements give power to local people to produce their own healthy food. This bottom-up approach involves fighting for the rights of local farmers. In communities, more food networks can also be established where people go and exchange food produce. Mark, I'd like to touch on this question of starvation and justice in in terms of war, because you've written some pieces on that with reference to Yemen. There's two colleagues who who wrote the piece, yeah, on my blog. There are gaps in international criminal law and international criminal justice, right? It's not a fully baked, beautiful cake, so to speak. It's still got some ingredients that are missing. And one of the curious, problematic, in many respects, missing ingredient was that while starvation was considered a war crime in international armed conflict when a conflict was fought across basically uh, state borders. It was omitted as a crime in non-international armed conflicts. This is probably largely a mistake of history and maybe a degree of the interest of states in avoiding this. But it was almost universally understood to be an oversight. So states led by Switzerland and others came together and they added that, they amended the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court to recognize that, yes, starvation is a war crime in civil wars. One of, I think, the impetuses for that the politi- and the political context that contributed to that being possible was, of course, Yemen and the obvious use of starvation essentially as a tool of war. So it permitted in many respects for that to occur with the caveat of course, that Yemen is not a member state of the International Criminal Court. So while this tragedy may have contributed to filling one of these gaps in the landscape of international criminal law, the sad irony and perhaps tragic irony is, is of course, that the people of Yemen cannot actually benefit from it. And of course, there are other countries that haven't signed up, uh, most notably the United States and Israel too. What are the implications of that? The most important one, perhaps, that is relevant to everyone is that it creates asymmetry in who can achieve justice. 
I think we're obviously, uh, and when, and I think we're just obviously at this, at a moment where the best thing you can say about the system of international justice, not as a cynic, but just as an observer, is that some people get some justice some of the time in some places. Very powerful states have some interest in international criminal justice and in addressing mass atrocities, and some don't. Weaker states too, you know, there are states like the Philippines who now want out of the ICC and want to withdraw their membership and have withdrawn their membership. So that just creates or embeds or entrenches this idea of selective justice. And I think that's the core fact. Now, it's utopian to imagine that they're all going to come together to endorse the system. And I think that's important to recognize. And there's a lot of good that can still come, even though we live in a deeply politically asymmetrical world. And courts like the ICC are still quite good, I think, at upsetting very powerful states who abuse their power, including the United States, which has, for the last four years, had periodic hissy fits suggesting that the ICC is the biggest threat that America faces and that this is a, you know, a kangaroo court hell bent on prosecuting Americans. I think that's really good. That's a good story for the court, at least, right, that it makes powerful states who want to stay out of the Rome Statute system, worry about their alleged crimes. One of the phrases that we haven't used so far today is social justice. And for many people in Colombia, for example, building peace and recovering from war is not just about seeing perpetrators punished in whatever way that is for crimes that have been committed, but also the conflict over so many years, as in Colombia, but also as in many other countries, has contributed to systemic inequalities and systemic violences. And that's why the, the 2016 peace accord with the FARC did seek to redress many of those structural issues. It had a point on land reform. It had a point on solving the issue of drug trafficking, which has fueled the conflict since the 1980s. And also increasingly environmental justice. And now the Transitional Justice Court in Colombia has just recognized one of the rivers the Atrato River in Colombia as a subject of rights that is going to be investigated also for the harm caused. I think there are many different perspectives on justice. And I think as a political anthropologist, the important thing is to pay attention to how different concepts are mobilized in different power struggles and different concepts and not kind of fixate on a normative view of what these concepts should mean, but see how they can be mobilized in different contexts to make things better for different groups of people. How fascinating is that? I just thought that's so fascinating, you know, the idea of giving something like a river, which we would tend to consider an object, largely an inanimate object, probably personhood, basically legal personhood, because only persons can have rights. And this connects to something that we often don't talk about, and is, I think is very relevant to the Colombian context, but is also relevant to the most developed states, including the one that I'm, you know, a citizen of and sitting in Canada. There's also indigenous conceptions that are very relevant. And indigenous people, at least in Canada, largely do not make differences between, you know, the natural world and people. They are all, in some senses, in our vocabulary, persons. And that kind of conception of how you might protect the environment by giving it personhood as a legal actor, as a legal person, uh, could certainly help protected. And I think it's it's really valuable listening to those voices. For the longest time, we would ignore those voices because they didn't speak in the same legal vocabulary that the rest of us have because of law school or, or whatever it is. 
So because they didn't speak Latin, they weren't allowed to contribute to these kinds of debates. And I think places like Colombia that helped democratize these types of conversations and decolonize the language of the law are incredibly useful for transitional justice, for international criminal law, and for all forms of justice, right? Social justice, ecological justice, and so on. At the same time, I think there's some almost intellectual work that needs to be done and, and that, that can be done to notice that, you know, a river may be treated as a person with rights. And if we treat it badly or commit, you know, essentially crimes against that river, that then affects real people, right? So the difference between an environmental crime and a crime against humanity sometimes may actually be much smaller than we anticipate. And there is a movement to include environmental crimes under the Rome Statute under the term ecocide, right? That basically the wanton destruction and irreparable destruction of the environment. That being said, I think one thing that's really important is that not all of this has to be done within a human rights or rights-based world. A lot of these issues pertain to political and social activism and development. And when we say that, you know, environmental issues or indigenous concerns with the planet or nature or the earth or whatever have to be articulated within the bounds of rights and that can therefore be defended, we are telling them that they have to fit within our, you know, neat little liberal box. And only once they fit within that box can they have these obligations or duties recognized and defended. And what I worry about there sometimes is that that happens without having a dialogue of sharing and, you know, essentially caring for others. And instead, it's an assimilation of their views into our, you know, again, this liberal rights box. And that, I think, can do violence. That's just another way of recolonizing people. And we need to be wary about it. We can have a dialogue. We can borrow. We can try to do things together. And I think rights are really important, but not at the expense of extinguishing alternative views of seeing the environment or people as being deserving of dignity and respect. If I may, I think that's a really important point because not everything is reducible to rights. And that's been one of the problems of the massification and professionalization of the human rights movement in contexts of conflict and post-conflict. Because I think that actually a lot of the time what ends up being translated as rights was originally some kind of political transformation initiative. And it's that structure which translates broader collective processes that seek to redress the structures and make political alternatives real. When that gets translated and individualized into individual rights, it really impoverishes things. And so I think we really need to be careful about not trying to put everything into the transitional justice box. But I think that the human rights community has played a role, if we're self-critical about it, in neoliberalizing the political struggles of political and social movements. And I think we need to also find ways at an international level of going back to being in solidarity with those movements and supporting those struggles. The only way we are learning to express our support for those struggles is through legal mechanisms or rights-based processes. And I think that that ends up debilitating the ways in which international solidarity can function. I couldn't agree more just with the one point that I think, because it's such an important takeaway, which is that if transitional justice is everything to everyone, it'll end up being nothing to anyone. And that's so important to recognize.
there we must bring it to a close. Thanks to my guests, Mark Kirsten and Gwen Bernier, for giving us their insights into such a tough subject. And thanks to you two for listening. We'd love to hear from you at nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Let us know what you think of the show. And if you'd like to catch up with our back catalogue with episodes of Magic, Grief, the American Election, and much, much more, you can find them and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcasts or at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.